I mean, the things people will do to get yoked, right? I mean, they'll, they'll nearly kill themselves. It's crazy. It's weird too. It's really weird. I hope to never see any of you doing anything like that in a gym, all right? Well, we're in the middle of a series called Yoked. And in this series, we're talking about the unhealthy attachments we have to people, habits, and systems that are holding us back and maybe even ruining our lives. And so we're looking to the scripture. We're looking to God's word to help us avoid and maybe even walk away from some of these unhealthy attachments, from some of these unhealthy things we have yoked ourselves. And we're seeing that in order to experience God's best in our life, we have to do things God's way because wrong alignments, this is the big idea for the series, wrong alignments, wrong assignments and attachments will always cost you more than you wanted to pay and always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. I'm going to say that again. Big idea for the series, wrong alignments, assignments and attachments will always cost you more than you wanted to pay and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Let, let me see a show of hands if you like chips and queso. How many in the room like chips and queso? Okay, all of us do, right? I mean, all of us, you're, 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 if you're a Texan, you love your Tex-Mex, you love chips and queso. How many of you have ever sat down at a table and uh, some people with you want to order chips and queso and you're like, you know, I don't really want it because, you know, I'm on a diet, I'm trying to get yoked, you know, and uh, I'm working out. I, I don't want the chips and queso, but if you get get it. I'll just have one, right? I mean, dudes, how many of you have had a girlfriend or a wife tell you, Oh, I don't want the French fries, but, but you get them and I'll, I'll eat just one, right? I'll, I'll have a friend. I'll have one of your French fries. All right. I'll have, I'll, I, you, you get the chips and queso and um, I'll just have one. And so the chips and queso come and you're like, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be disciplined. Like I'm gonna make the right choice here. I'm just going to have one chip. And so you get that one chip, you dip it in the queso. And then what do you do? You know what? I'm gonna have one more, you know, just one more though. I, I had the one, it was, it was everything I thought it would be, all right? And so I gotta have like one more. I know I'm making some of you hungry like right now and you're like, hey, I'm ready to go eat some chips and queso. And so I need you to hurry up, okay? Cause you're making me hungry, all right? I don't wanna disappoint you. We're gonna be here for just a little bit longer, okay? And then you'll get your chips and queso. But one, piece, one chip and queso leads to another chips and queso, right? And then two leads to three and three leads to, to four. And then what happens? you're left with an empty basket of chips, right? Because one led to like 50, okay? And you still got some queso left over, so what do you do? You know what, we'll just take another basket of chips. You know, we got some queso left over. Uh, that, that one more chip, that one chip, and that one more chip led to one more basket. And in, in my house, it's peanut butter M&Ms. We, we love us some peanut butter M&Ms, okay? It's like a race to get home to see who can get the family size bag of peanut M&Ms, peanut butter M&Ms, and finish those things off, right? I mean, we love us some peanut butter M&Ms. One family size bag usually lasts us one day, right? And then there's the Sour Patch Kids. How, how many of you are Sour Patch Kids people? You love you some Sour Patch Kids. One, you think one's gonna lead to two, but then before you know it, you finished off that Costco size bag of Sour Patch Kids, right? Am I right? Anybody else like us? I mean, we can demolish an industrial size, commercial size, Costco size thing of Sour Patch Kids because one always leads to another. And another compromise always leads to another. And this step always leads to another step. You know, the scripture says, the pleasures of sin 
do last for a short while. I've heard it said before, if you're not having fun when you sin, then you're not doing it right, okay? Because the pleasure of sin does last for a little while. It lasts for a little while and then reality sets in. Then the pain, then the regret, then the destruction from sin, the curse of sin sets in and you realize that wasn't worth it. That was a bad trade. I shouldn't have taken that step. I shouldn't have compromised even just a little bit because sin is always a downward spiral. Compromise is always a downward spiral. One chip leads to two chips, which leads to 500 chips, right? And that's the nature of sin. It's the nature of compromise. It's always a downward spiral. And I want you to see the downward spiral of sin in the life of King David this morning. So if you got your Bible, go to second Samuel chapter 11, we're going to be in 11 and 12, and then we're going to flip over to Psalm 51. And if you don't have a Bible, or even if you do, I invite you to follow along in our message notes on our app, download our app to city church. Love it. Now's a great time to open that up, click message notes. And the points are all there. The verses are there. You can even fill in the blank with the words that are in all caps on my TV right here. And that's a great way to participate and kind of uh, uh, join in our time together and make the most out of our time together. But, but King David, mo most of us know who King David was, but if you don't, uh, King David was one of the most famous Kings in the history of Israel, the nation of Israel. It was uh, David and Goliath. It was Saul who was king. God rejected Saul as king because of the pride that was in his heart. And he anoints and raises up David to take over from Saul. And so David is the second king and, and maybe besides Solomon, maybe the most famous king in all of Israel's history. And it's David that God raises up to lead the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel would prosper under his leadership in unimaginable ways, like, like they would prosper financially, militarily, powerful, powerfully. I mean, Israel blossomed and flourished under David's leadership. But here's what you're going to see today. It was in spite of David most of the time, not because of him. It was by the grace and mercy of God that he chose David and that the nation of Israel flourished under David's leadership, not necessarily because of him, but oftentimes in spite of him. God in his grace and mercy, praise God, still uses broken, messed up people and organizations and churches. I mean, he just, he does because of his grace and mercy. And I'm thankful for that because I think if you're like me, you're gonna see a lot of yourself in David this morning. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, here, here's where the downward spiral of sin begins. Number one, it begins with the context of sin. is where the downward spiral begins, the context of sin. The where's, the when's, and the who's. It's the context. Verse one, chapter 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war. So where should David be right now? With his army, at the battle against the Ammonites. So in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army out to fight the Ammonites. So David was supposed to go with him. That's what's normal. That's where he should have been. It's who he should have been with, but he's not where he should have been. He's not who he should have been with. Instead, he sent Joab out in his place to fight this battle with the Ammonites. They destroyed excuse me, they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
So he's not where he should be. He's not who he should be with. And he's got all the wrong context. So here's what you got to understand. Wrong places, wrong people, and wrong times always produce wrong decisions. You got to catch that. The downward spiral of sin starts in being in the wrong place with the wrong people at the wrong time. It always produces wrong decisions. Now, whether that's a decision you make or sometimes being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people results in a bad decision someone else makes and perpetrates against you and you're the victim of that wrong decision, whether it's you making the decision or someone making the decision against you and you are the victim of that wrong decision, Wrong places, wrong people, and wrong times lead to and produce, give birth to wrong decisions. The wrong context gives birth and life to temptation. And you're going to see that here in just a second. The wrong context always gives birth and life to temptation. The craving of sin is what the wrong context will get you. It'll put you in a place where you're tempted and you begin to crave the sin, that wrong decision. And that's number two. This downward spiral of sin leads to the next stop, the craving of sin. Look in verse two. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed, he's taking a nap, he's home, he's not where he's supposed to be, he's, he's you know, chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool, you know, if you're from my generation, right? So he gets out of bed, he's walking on the roof of the palace, as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Some translations say he noticed and he saw, he, he looked. He saw this woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And watch, here's what he was told. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So, so he knows ahead of time, this is a married woman. He sees this woman He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He desires her, so he tries to find out who is this woman because he notices, he looks, he sees something that looks good. And he knows it's gonna feel good, okay? Looks good, it's gonna feel good, I want that. Wrong context gives birth and life to wrong cravings, sinful cravings. He sees it, he wants it, he inquires about her, and listen, the craving of sin is so strong that he knows this is a married woman and watch what he does anyways. David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now, what you've got to understand about this day, this time, this culture, the power dynamics that are going on here, you're dealing with a woman that is very low class, very poor, versus the king, the sovereign king of Israel who gets what he wants when he wants it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. She has no choice. And, and so my opinion here is that we have, in our effort to kind of save David and people like him in the scripture, that the scripture has no problem with really throwing under the bus as a really, really bad person and bad leader. We, we have said that David slept with Bathsheba, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, that, that they, they committed adultery to get, that, that's not what happens here. This is at best sexual abuse because of the power dynamics that are going on here. And at worst, it's rape. She had no choice in the matter. What David wants, he gets. 
That's the role. That's the power dynamics that are going on here. So he sends for her, even though she's a married woman. Why? He liked what he saw. He saw her. She looked good. He knows it's going to feel good. He liked what he saw. And so he called for her and she is brought to him and he sleeps with her. James one says this, that we are enticed by our own desires. And then we are drug away into sin that we're drug away into sin when we are enticed by our own desires. In other words, when we're enticed by what looks good, feels good, sounds good, we're, we're enticed by our own desires and then we are drug away into sin. You see, you've got to understand things that look good, feel good, sound good, doesn't mean it's good. Just because it looks good, sounds good and feels good, doesn't mean it's good. Usually, because the scripture says in Jeremiah, our hearts are so wicked and evil that we can't trust them. So we can't trust our hearts. Paul says in Romans one, our, our minds are evil. Come, they, they come up with foolish thoughts. We can't trust our thoughts. We can't trust our hearts. We, we can't trust our own desires. So, so usually what feels good and sounds good like to our flesh isn't good. It's actually a mirage. It's a trap promising something it can't deliver. This is Genesis three, where Adam and Eve are in the wrong place, looking and gazing at the fruit of the tree that the Lord said, you may not eat of it. And what do they do? We're going to go right up to that line, right? I'm going to get as, as close as to the line as I can possibly get without going over the line. And so I'm getting close to the line. I know, Lord, you told me not to eat of this fruit, but I'm not going to eat it. I'm just going to look at it. I'm going to admire it. I'm going to see it. I'm going I'm to smell it. it. Oh my gosh, that fruit, it looks so good. So if it looks good, it sounds good, it feels good, it must be good, right? So what do Adam and Eve, what do, Adam and Eve do? They, they take and eat. They disobey God. And as a result, the curse of sin rains down upon them, the entire world, and every other person that would be born after them is born into sin and into the curse of sin. It wasn't good. It was a, it was a mirage. It was a trap. Their desires were a mirage. It was a trap. The Lord said to Cain, when he was wanting to kill his brother Abel, Cain, be careful. Sin's lurking at the door and it's ready to pounce. You follow your desires. You're going to taken out. The idea there was God, God was saying in Hebrew, the idea was that there was a beast waiting on the other side of that door. And as you walk through that door that looks good, feels good, and sounds good, there's a beast waiting on the other side of that doorway, ready to pounce. Be careful, Cain, be careful. Sin's gonna take you out. It's a trap. It may look good, feel good, sound good, but it's a trap. And when you give in to what looks good, feels good, sounds good, it's always not only a trap, it's always a trade. It's always a trade that you never saw coming. You end up trading what you want most for what you want now. That's what the craving of sin will get you. You, you end up trading what you want most, the blessing of God, the, the joy of God, God's best for your life. 
You end up trading it for what you want now for a moment and the pleasure of sin might last for a moment, but you've ended up trading what you want most in this life for what you want now. It's always a trap. The, the cravings, the desires that we have are always, are always a trap. Verse five says this later, when Bathsheba, Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. So what does David do? He's in the wrong context. He's not where he should be. He's not who he should be with. He, he's alone by himself, looking at something, viewing something that looks good. He gives into his sexual desire and craving into this moment when he's all by himself. You ever been in that spot? All alone, not where you should be, not who you should be with, looking at something, giving in to that craving, that, that desire. It's why we have locked our kids' phones down. They have no access to a web browser. It's why our kids cannot have their phones at night. It's why every last one of us need accountability on any device that we have that gets to the internet. Because when you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, it always gives birth and life to temptation, to giving into the craving of sin. And instead of confessing his sin, when he learns of what's happened, that he's going to be found out. Instead of confessing his sin, the cover-up begins, just like Adam and Eve. They try to hide, they try to cover themselves up with leaves, realizing their shame, their embarrassment. Instead of confessing, the cover-up begins. And that's the third stop on the downward spiral of sin, the concealing of sin. The wrong context gives birth to the craving. The, the craving gives birth to the sin. And the next stop is the concealment. You try to cover it up. You, you don't confess your sin like David. You, we, we try to cover up our sin. We conceal our sin. Look what happens next in verse six. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah. This is Bathsheba's husband. Send me Uriah. Send him home from the front. So Joab sent him, Uriah, to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. And then he told Uriah, go home and relax. Go home and relax and be with your wife. David's trying to cover up his sin, thinking that Uriah will go home, sleep with his wife. Everything will be good. We're good. We're in the clear. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah replied, the ark, the ark of the covenant and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. 
Do you you see the, the honor and the integrity that's in Uriah as contrasted with the lack of integrity and honor in David? Well, stay here today, David told him. And tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. So, so does David confess now? No, no, he, he continues with the cover-up. He continues with the concealing of his sin. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance at the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. David had Uriah killed. He murdered him. This is murder. David murdered Uriah. And not only that, what ends up happening when you continue in sin and concealing your sin. It, it, not, it, it ruins people's lives, but it ruins people's lives you never would have guessed it would ruin. It not only ruins Uriah's life by killing him, but there's other Israelite soldiers that are caught up in this mix and they get killed as well. Your sin will always not only ruin your life, it'll ruin the lives of everyone around you the deeper that you go. So Uriah's dead and David's got to be thinking, that was a close one, right? Got away with that. All's good. I mean, David, do you not even see the wake of destruction that you have left in your sin? You've killed all these people. Bathsheba's pregnant and you think you got away with it. Like, you, you think it's all good because you, you covered it up. It's like a, a child playing hide and go seek with their parents. You, you ever done this before? You ever played hide and go seek with like a, a, a kindergartner before? That they hide under blankets and under beds and, and they're giggling and they're moving around and you can see their arms and their legs. And you can see different parts of them. They, they think they're hiding. They think they've covered themselves up, but they stand out like a sore thumb, right? You can see them. You can hear them. And you play along and they're laughing the whole time thinking that they're concealed, that they're hidden when they're not because their father, their mother sees them. The scripture says one of the names for God is El Roy, the God who sees he sees all, he knows all, he knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything you've ever thought. Revelation says his eyes are like fire. He sees everything you've done, everything you've thought, every motivation and desire of your heart. He sees it. Our Lord is the God who sees. He sees all. In fact, God at one point is judging Israel and Israel's priests, telling them, you you really think I don't see everything that you've been doing? Do you really think so little of me to think that I don't see it all? Are you that foolish? To think that I don't see everything that you're doing and everything that you're thinking. 
So the craving of sin, the conception of sin leads to the concealing of sin, which leads to the next stop on the downward spiral of sin, the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. Now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse one. David thinks he's hidden it, that he's covered it all up, but the Lord has seen. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse one, it says this. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story, that there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He, he raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled in his arms like a baby daughter. How, how many of you had that pet that you think is like a child? Like, and you think you're, uh, you're a mom and you're dad because you've, you've got a pet and you, you hold it like it's a baby and you feed it like it's a baby. It's your baby, right? That, that, that's what Nathan is saying here. That this man has this little lamb and he's raised it like it's a child, like a daughter. And he's fed it from his plate and let, it, let him drink from his own cup. He cuddles it in his arm like, like it's a baby daughter. Well, one day a guest arrived at their home in the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd for, for the meal for this guest, he takes the poor man's lamb and kills it and prepares it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed. Any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. Some translations say this, that David said, kill that man. He deserves to die. Kill that man. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword. There's going to be strife. There's going to be division. There's going to be betrayal in war. Your family's going to live by the sword because you've despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. Nathan says, there's a traveler, there's a guest who came and the rich man didn't want to use one of his own lambs. He wanted to use the poor man's lamb. So watch this, a lamb raised like a child, not raised for slaughter, is led to the slaughter. I'm gonna say that again, we're gonna come back to it at the end, but a lamb, here's the story that Nathan tells to get David to understand and to realize his own sin and what's happened here and, and the evilness of his sin. Here's what he says. He talks about a lamb who was raised like a child that was not raised for slaughter that ends up being led to the slaughter. And this enrages David. 
David says, kill that man. He deserves to die. Isn't it funny how we always see others sin more seriously than our own? David attempts to rid himself of his guilty conscience by passing judgment on someone else. He can see his own sin in someone else more clearly than he sees it in himself. We always do. We always tend to accuse others and excuse ourselves. We make less of our sin when we make much of other people's sin. We minimize our sin and we maximize others' sin. And so God sends Nathan to bring some clarity to the situation here for David. He sends Nathan to deliver his own judgment. And Nathan says, here's the word from the Lord. You are that man. You're the man, David. You're the man who took the lamb that was raised like a child and you slaughtered it. You're the man. Isn't it interesting, just, just kind of side note here, isn't it interesting that God sends a person to judge another person for their sin on his behalf here? Like when our society and even Christians today are crying out and claiming that no one should be able to judge them for their sin, the, the scripture says that God uses a man and sends him to another man to deliver God's judgment against his sin on God's behalf. It's kind of like Paul saying, what business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Aren't we to judge those inside the church, Paul says? Answer, yes. Yes, we are. That, that's the rhetorical question. That's the answer to Paul's question. Yes, we are. And I know some of you are like, but wait a second, wait a second. Doesn't Jesus say in Matthew seven to not judge? Yeah, I, I know he must say that. He, he says, don't judge. Whew, I'm off the hook. The word that Jesus uses there in Matthew seven is do not pronounce eternal judgment on someone. Like you're not to pronounce where the eternal destination of their soul is headed because you don't know, you don't know their heart. And then he goes on to say in Matthew chapter seven, so when you're going to approach your brother in his sin, first take out the plank in your own eye, the sin in your own eye, then you will be able to help your brother take out the speck of sawdust in his eye. In other words, when you confess your own sin before God, you're then in a right frame of mind and you can approach your brother or sister who's living in sin with the right spirit. But make no mistake, we are to judge those inside the church of their life and actions in speech. That, that's, that's clear. And when someone's living in unrepentant sin, Paul even says, we take it a step further. And if they have declared themselves a follower of Jesus and a member of that local body of Christ, then you are to remove them from your fellowship when someone is living in sin, in unrepentant sin, and will not turn from that sin. You are to remove them from your fellowship. So God uses a man, he sends a person to judge another person's sin on his behalf. And when Nathan talks about this lamb that's like a daughter to this, other, to this poor man, the, the word daughter here in Hebrew starts out with the word bot, which is the first part of Bathsheba's name in Hebrew. So, Nathan is saying that Bathsheba is like this lamb. 
And the story reveals that this lamb that is Bathsheba is sacrificed on the altar of David's lust. Not only Uriah, but also Bathsheba. She was sacrificed. That's, this is what the story is kind of revealing to us, that it's actually Bathsheba who is sacrificed on the altar of David's lust as he took what wasn't his and forcefully made her his. God says to David through the prophet, Nathan, everything you had that I gave you, it wasn't enough. And so you had to take what wasn't yours. And in doing so, God says through the prophet Nathan to David, you showed contempt against me and to my word. You, you basically raped that woman and spit on the Imago day. That's the image of God that every last person on the face of the, every person on the face of this planet from the moment of conception has the image of God. They're created in the image and likeness of God with that stamp of God. That's the Imago day. You, you spit on that, David, and you showed contempt for me in my word. And the consequences, the fallout, the destruction starts with Uriah, the, the murder of Uriah. Next, we learn in subsequent chapters that this baby that Bathsheba is pregnant with as a result of David taking her and sleeping with her ends up dying. That there would be betrayal that would lead to war in David's own household. Just as Nathan the prophet said, the sword is coming. Death and betrayal and war is coming to your household, David, because of your sin. And, and so in the scripture, we know David's consequences for his sin because the scripture tells us what they're going to be and then shows us how those things come to fruition. So, so here, I want you to take note of something real quick. Here, we see the one-to-one -one causation of sin and the consequence to that sin. And we know that because we have the word of the Lord here. But it's dangerous for us to do that. So sometimes that's clear, but, but it's dangerous for us to step into one-to-one -one direct causation of consequence in sin because we don't always know that. L let, me, let me give you an example. When, when Hurricane Katrina hit long ago, some pastors were saying, well, God brought that hurricane to judge the city of New Orleans. Maybe, but, but we don't know that. We can't take what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah and God wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin immediately in the way that he did and say, well, every other time, something of that kind of nature, that's exactly what's happening there. We don't know one-to-one -one direct causation. What we do know is indirect, at the very least, is indirect causation, is indirect consequence of sin. You reap what you sow. And there is consequences for sin. The scripture says God disciplines his kids, that there's discipline for God's kids when they sin against him and they show contempt for the word of God. There are consequences for sin in this life, even for children of God. And so even though we don't always know direct one-to-one -one causation, here's what we do know. Here's what we always know about the downward spiral of sin, wrong alignments, Wrong assignments and wrong attachments will always cost you more than you wanted to pay and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. 
We always know that. And so David's on this downward spiral, but God in his grace, I want you to see this, God in his grace sends Nathan the prophet to judge David, to deliver the judgment of God. That is a gracious gift that David received was this confrontation, was the judgment of God through Nathan. This was God's grace bringing someone into his life to reveal his sin to him. By God's grace, God sent David or Nathan to David to get him off of this downward spiral of sin and David takes the path off. So here's what I want you to see in the rest of our time together, that the path off the downward spiral of sin. And David takes it. So, so what is that path off the downward spiral of sin? It's the confession of sin. The path off the downward spiral of sin is the confession of sin. When David is confronted with his sin, he is broken over his sin. He realizes that he's the man that should be killed. Kill the man. Nathan says, you're the man. David realizes I'm the man that deserves to die for my sin. I've shown contempt for God and for his word. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against all these people. He's broken over his sin and he pins Psalms 51 as a response. And so join with me in Psalm chapter 51, starting in verse one. Let's read David's confession of his sin. He says this, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion and it haunts me day and night. You ever been there before? Where your sin just is haunting you day and night? David says, I've rebelled against you. My sin is haunting me day and night. So God, I need you to come and cleanse me and wash me and have mercy on me. Do, do, do you notice the beginning of David's confession of sin here, the, the path off, the, 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 the way off the downward spiral is not, God, I promise I'm gonna do better and try harder. I'm gonna fix all this. I'm gonna clean it all up. I'm gonna one, two, three it. I'm gonna stop doing one, two, three. I'm gonna start doing one, two, three. Is that what David says? Is that how the confession goes here? No, David knows I can't clean this up. I can't change my own heart. God, I need you to come and do for me what I can't do for myself. I need you to cleanse me and wash me and purify me against you and you alone. Have I sinned? I've done what's evil in your sight. You are proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. Nathan just told him the sword is coming to your household. Death and betrayal and war is coming to your house, David, because of your sin. And David says, God, your judgment against me is just. I deserve it. I, I, I'm not hating you or blaming you for the consequences of my sin or the suffering or the pain that I find myself in as a result of my choices and my decisions. No, 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 no. God, you are just, you are right in the judgments that you have laid against me for my sin. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom, even there, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back again, my joy. You have broken me. 
Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Make me willing to obey you. The, the, the confession of David is, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this for myself. And so I need you to wash me, make me clean, purify me, renew a right and loyal spirit in me to you and to your word. And then here's what I need you to do. Make, don't miss this. I need you to make me willing to obey you. I'm not willing to obey you on my own. I crave sin. So I need you, God, to do for me what I can't do for myself. I need you to make me, I need you to change my heart so that I am willing and desirous of obeying you. Then watch what happens. After this, after you do all of this in my heart and for me that I can't do for myself, and after you make me willing to obey you, then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for the shedding of blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You don't desire sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. David says, I, I can't one, two, three this. I'm not going back to my religious routine, my religious routine isn't going to fix or heal or wash or do anything. God, I need you to change my heart from the inside out. Then once the internal work of transformation is done, then the external behavior and lifestyle flows from that then. Did you notice what David said? Change my heart, make me willing to obey you. Then open my lips that I can teach others and sing. I, I'm not coming just to go through my religious routine and check off the boxes because I sinned against you. No, God, I need you to do the inner work of a surgeon on my heart to change my heart and make me willing to obey you. And then I will sing. And then I can teach others. But God, I need you to do in me what I cannot do for myself. Two, two things I want you to see about Psalm 51. Uh, number one, this is the gospel. This is a foreshadowing of the new covenant. Not a, this isn't just confession. This is almost prophecy of the new covenant that is to come where God said, I'm going to put my spirit inside of you and move you from the inside out to obey me. Do you, do you remember what David said? Make me willing to obey you. And that's what God has done in the new covenant. When you give your life to Jesus, God puts his spirit inside of you and moves you from the inside out to worship and obey and to talk about him and to read the scripture and to pray. God moves you from the inside out. He makes you willing to obey. He gives you a hatred, a brokenness over your sin. But, it, but it's through the gospel, it's through placing your faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God who died in your place for your sin, the, the Lamb who was raised like a child, not for slaughter, but was led away to the slaughter to die in your place for your sin. 
When you give your life to him, what happens? Your sin is forgiven. You're made clean. You're purified. You remember what David said? When you wash me, I will be whiter than snow. That's what the gospel does. When you give your life to Jesus, to the lamb who was slain in your place for your sin, your sin is forgiven. You're made clean. You're made spotless and blameless. Though your sin was like scarlet, you've been made as white as snow. The stain of your sin, as David said, is removed when you give your life to Jesus. So, so, so this is the gospel. This is a foreshadowing of the new covenant. Jesus said, all of the scripture points to me. It all does. And so it's no surprise that in David's confession of his sin, we, we see the gospel. It's no surprise that when Nathan comes to confront David with the word of the Lord, that we see the gospel, even in the story that Nathan tells about a lamb who was raised like a child, not for slaughter, that has led to the slaughter. We see the gospel. It all points to him. And then secondly, here's what I want you to know about this passage in Psalm 51. This is what happens when a believer sins. When a follower of Jesus sins, because they have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them, giving them hatred for sin and a love for holiness, you are broken over your sin. Like Peter, when he denied Jesus and then he locked eyes with Jesus, it says he fell on his knees and he wept bitterly over his sin. This is what it looks like when a follower of Jesus sins. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly grief, good grief leads to repentance. Not just feeling bad, that's, that's worldly grief. That's worldly grief. Worldly grief feels bad about their sin, but there's no change. They're not really broken over their sin. Worldly grief leads to death. Worldly grief says this, that, that's who you are. So just live like it. What's the big deal? What's the problem? There's nothing wrong with it. It's who you are. And it leads you into death. Godly grief is conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing. That's good grief. The conviction of the Holy Spirit says this, that's not who you are. You're, you're, you did that, you said that, but that's not who you are. You're a child of God. You are called to live in holiness and righteousness. That, that's not who you, what you did is not who you are. You're a child of God. And so the Holy Spirit calls you into repentance, which leads to life. That's godly grief. It leads to repentance, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter seven. Godly grief, good grief leads to repentance. It leads to transformation, it leads to life. Repentance is the internal change of your heart and mind, which leads to an external change of action. And that's what happens here in Psalm 51. David realizes, God, I need you to change my heart. I, I can't do that. I need you to change my mind and my heart internally. And when you do that, then that will produce the external change in my behavior. So, so here's the big idea today. Here's good grief. Here's what repentance looks like. It's heart transformation that produces behavior modification. 
That's good grief. This is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It doesn't start here. I don't one, two, three it. I don't start doing one, two, three and stop doing one, two, three. No, no, no. God, I need you to come and do for me what I cannot do for myself. And that is change my heart and make me willing to obey you. God, break my heart over my sin, change my heart, change my mind. And then just like David said, and then my life will change. My actions will change. My lifestyle, my behavior will change God when you've changed my heart. That's good grief. That's godly grief that leads to repentance and it's not the other way around. So, so, so here's how you know, here's how you know that your heart has been changed, that you've experienced repentance, heart transformation that's gonna lead to behavior modification. Here, here, here's how you know, Here, here's how you know you've experienced heart transformation. You're broken over your sin, you hate it. And you're willing to do whatever it takes to get out of it and to run from it. Like Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, get violent, get extreme. You know your heart's been changed when you hate your sin, when you were on a run from your sin, when you're willing to do whatever it takes to get away from your sin, when you're willing to get extreme and when you're willing to get help. You know that your heart has been changed. And so if you're here today and you're broken over your sin, you hate it, you wanna run from it, you know you gotta get extreme, you know you need to get some help. I wanna invite you at the end of our service to come and pray with one of our prayer team members, have them pray for you. Maybe jump on our app and, and select that help button where you can ask to meet with a pastor or even see our list of professional counselors. But whatever, it, whatever that help looks like for you, you need help. You need accountability to turn from your sin. And if you're not there yet, then you haven't experienced the heart transformation that's gonna to lead to your behavior modification. You see, you know your heart hasn't been really changed about your sin. Your mind hasn't really been changed about your sin when you're still justifying your sin, when you're still marginalizing, downplaying, minimizing your sin, when you're saying you don't really need help, then you know your heart hasn't really been changed. And the longer that you do that, the quicker you're going to find yourself at the lowest spot on the downward spiral of sin, which is where you begin to idolize your sin by saying there's nothing wrong with it anyways. And then you begin to identify with your sin and say, that's just who I am. That's the lowest spot on the downward spiral of sin. You begin to call evil good and you begin to identify with it and say, that's just who I am. It's the way God made me. That's the last rung on the downward spiral of sin. And you begin to see, say things like, well, I love Jesus, but, but I don't really like the Bible. I don't really like the church. Jesus never gave you that option. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words, then I'll be ashamed of you one day. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. You don't get to separate Jesus from his word. Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church. The church belongs to Jesus It's the bride of Christ. You don't get to separate Jesus and the church. Jesus told Paul when he was persecuting the church, he said, why are you persecuting me? 
We, we don't get to separate Jesus from his word and Jesus from his church. And, and if that's where you're at, then you know you're on the, the bottom rung of the downward spiral of sin. You've begun to idolize your sin, calling it good, and you've begun to identify with it and then begun to say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't really like his word or the church. You begin to think, well, Jesus was loving and affirming, and so he loves and affirms me no matter what I do. Listen, Jesus did not practice affirmational inclusion. He practiced transformational inclusion. He told the woman caught in adultery, go and leave your life of sin. He told the disciples, you gotta deny yourself. You don't celebrate yourself and find yourself. No, you deny yourself, you die to yourself, and you follow me. That's the kind of inclusion Jesus practiced. Deny, die, and then follow me. Leave your life of sin. And so if you're here and you're like, where do I start? I'm on the downward spiral of sin. Where do I stop? Where do I start? John said this in 1 John 1 verse nine. He said this, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin to God today and he will forgive your sin and then he will cleanse you from your sin. So if you mess up, don't cover it up. Fess up and God will clean you up. If you mess up, don't cover it up. Fess up and God will clean you up. Years ago, when my son Levi, after he started following Jesus, he, he would start trying to <coughs> confess things to us. And we told him, hey, when you mess up, <coughs> let's talk about it. We need to bring it out in the light. We gotta get it out of the dark and we gotta bring it into the light. And when you bring it into the light, then sin and the darkness loses its power. And so we've told him, hey, whatever it is, let, let's talk about it, let, let's pray about it. And so years ago, I'll never forget, we got in an argument, he was being disrespectful and we were talking about that and we were praying about that. And, and he told me this, he said, dad, um, you know, when you were telling me to go and do whatever it was, he said, all I could think about in my mind is I just wanted you to shut up. And I was like, okay, you know, thanks for being honest with me. Appreciate that, you know, okay, all right. Uh, let's pray about that, all right? Cause that's not okay. That went on for years. And even in the last year, in a couple of different instances, Levi's gone to bed at night and he'll wake up and he'll come into our room sometimes and wake us up and say, mom, dad, I gotta talk, we gotta talk. This is what happened. And we'll pray with him about that. He'll go back to bed. Then 15 minutes later, he's back in our room. Actually, there's more to it than that. Here's what really happened. Here's what I was really thinking. Okay, son, we'll pray about that. Let's talk about that. And he'll go back to sleep. There's been nights where that's happened two or three times. Why is that? Because like David said, a believer is haunted by their sin day and night. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit calling you out of darkness into light. That is the heart of God. He, by his spirit, is calling you out of darkness and into his light, into freedom. That's the heart of God. He wants to set you free. He wants you to be in the light as he is in the light because that's a freeing place to be. Romans 8, 1 through 3 says this, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you 
from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. And he sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for sin. God did what the law could not do. There's no amount of doing better and trying harder and one, two, three it that will make you clean and right before God. It's only by the grace and mercy of God when you confess your sin to him by your faith in Jesus, that your sin is forgiven and you're made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's the same thing is true for you. You confess your sin on the basis of the lamb that was slain in your place for your sin. A lamb that was raised like a child, that wasn't meant for slaughter, that was led away to be slaughtered so that you and I would not be slaughtered. That's the great news of the gospel. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then there's no condemnation for you who are in Christ. You've been set free. So live and walk in freedom and come into the light. That's the heart of your father who's calling you right now into freedom and into light. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that right now by your spirit, you would call us into the light and into freedom. And that God, by your spirit, you would make us willing to obey you, to listen to the voice of the spirit, to not harden our hearts right now in this moment, but to listen to the voice of the spirit, calling us into light, calling us into freedom. And God, I pray there would be people all over this room and watching online right now, that get off the downward spiral of sin as they confess their sin and you forgive them and you cleanse them from all unrighteousness. God, would you do that right now in this moment? In Jesus' name, amen. Here in just a minute, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper, but before we do, we're gonna worship. And so I wanna invite you to stand and we're gonna worship. And um, the words to this song go like this. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. Yes, I see it now, I'm laying it down and I know what I need to do. I run to the Father, I fall into grace, I'm done with the hiding, there's no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again and again. Would you stand as we sing?